This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Today is the day we kick off the Green Economy series. This series has been made possible by a collaboration with Africa's premier development finance institution, the African Development Bank Group, and in particular, its Climate Change and Green Growth Department. So we kick off by having a conversation on the continent's climate challenges and opportunities with Dr. Anthony Neon. Dr. Neon is the Climate Change and Green Growth Department Director He has about 30 years of experience in environmental and natural resources management, renewable energy, and green growth. Welcome, Dr. Neong, and thank you so much for joining us today. Please tell us more about Dr. Neong. Thank you very, very much, Sophie, for inviting me to have this podcast with with you. Uh, My name is um, Anthony Neong. I'm currently the director of the Climate Change and Green Growth Department at the African Development Bank. Um, I've been here for 12 years and been a part of the major movement around climate change, not just on the continent, but globally, but most importantly, on how Africa can have its fair share of what is out there in terms of uh, bringing to world's attention the challenges Africa faces and even the potentials that are there and that's why I accepted this because we want to look at it from a very balanced perspective. Mm. Uh, I, I spent three years in Kenya uh, wow. at the International Development Research Center okay. where we also were working on climate change, building local adaptive capacity mm-hmm. on on climate change. And uh, before then, I used to be a a professor at the university. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's how the the title of professor has stuck. Yeah. But um, done that and also have had the privilege of leading most of the continent on climate change, green growth on the African continent. I've had the privilege even here at the bank of leading, heading um, the climate change department as I do now before then the environmental and social safeguards. So I see a broader perspective. Mm -hmm. And I've also had the opportunity and the privilege to head the gender, civil society, climate change, sustainable development units. So it gives me a broader perspective on where we are on the continent. Thank you so much. And and I sincerely do appreciate you taking your time to have this conversation with me. Yeah, you're welcome. We are in a new dispensation currently, and not only Africa, but the world is dealing with COVID-19 effects. And also, we have seen a lot of effects. We've seen cyclones hit Africa, flooding, drought. And I was thinking probably we could just start in terms of talking about the climate challenge amid the COVID-19, you know, what the economies are going through. Yeah, thanks so very much uh, again, Sophie. It's, uh, let me start by you know, when people talk about Africa, they largely think of, from outside, it gives you the perspective of one homogeneous entity somewhere, one small, you know, because mm-hmm. they see 
Africa as an island, as a continent, just standing on its own, it thinks it's one homogeneous place. Mm. So we talk about climate change, Africa, people begin to think maybe it's like um, climate change impact in one of the Caribbean countries, you know, yeah. or climate change impact in, we say, the UK, because when you actually look at most of the publication, which is very annoying at times, mm -hmm. you see the least countries' emissions, you know, X yeah. country, this is this, Y country. But when it comes to Africa, we bunch all together, 54, 54. or as you may like it, 55 African countries. Mm -hmm. They bunch them together and compare them with countries who don't have the same population, who don't have the same uh, characteristics and whatever. So it's really annoying to see that after many years, people still look at Africa as a country. A country. Mm. So when we talk about the climate change and Africa, we need to understand that this is a continent that has almost all the entire ecosystems you can imagine, from the desert landscape to the ocean, you yeah. know, and everything in between. You have places that are flooding, you have other places that are experiencing severe droughts, mm. you have places that are already experiencing sea level rise and erosions, you know, you have people that are suffering from the impacts of hurricane and so on. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, we have these people and communities suffering the same, you know, adverse impacts, extreme events simultaneously. Yeah. You find a community going from flood to drought immediately, or from drought to flood immediately, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, these are the things we are seeing. We have seen the floods in the Sahel. Who would have mm -hmm. imagined that magnitude of flooding in the dry parts of Kenya, that mm. magnitude of flooding in Sudan, to the point that it even threatens pyramids that have been there for thousands of years yeah. and the economy, you know, or that you have the hurricane Idai, mm -hmm. Kenneth, that happened last year, which were the most devastating yeah. uh, cyclones or hurricanes to take place in the southern hemisphere of Africa, mm. you know then while people are grappling with that you have the desert locust that is like an army you know mm. eating up everything in his side crops you know and so on these are things happening simultaneously you know then you still have your traditional droughts on of africa sahel you know trout are going on there it's affecting livelihoods it's affecting people's uh, choices and options is affecting global economy. The African Ministerial Conference on Environment has noted that they spend about 2% yeah. of their resources in addressing the aftermath of climate extreme events or extreme climate events. I always say this is lost money because what money you put into uh, a post-disaster intervention is largely lost. Okay. It's not building resilience, it's not building adaptive capacity, it is just to rescue. Uh -huh. That's money going into rescue operations. Uh -huh. How do we ensure that this does not continue? Because it leads to what I normally term the uh, capital expenditure displacements. This money is not lying somewhere waiting. Yeah. This is money that will be called from the education budget, uh -huh. from the health budget, uh -huh. from infrastructure budget. So you find that each time this happens, 
it takes us further backwards because we couldn't do what we wanted to do with education. We couldn't do what we wanted to do with agriculture. We couldn't do what we wanted to do with infrastructure, with health, because we've taken that money to go see how we can raise people. So it sets us back in all dimensions. And we are seeing that Africa's modest gains in sustainable development are being severely eroded. You take Ethiopia, for instance. Ethiopia was growing in double digits, was a darling poster growth country in Africa. They were doing everything right. Yeah. Then in 2015, we had El Nino. Hmm. Then 2016, something we had drought. 2018, we had famine. Ethiopia went back to food ahead because of that single event. Most of the countries in East Africa suffering from it. The desert locusts we're seeing is an aftermath, you know, yeah. of that El Nino effect mm -hmm. that is going on. So this is really setting us back, you know, yeah. in many ways. And the challenge with this mm -hmm. is that Africa looks back and says, what crime have we committed? 54 African countries combined, you know, contribute less than 5%. Actually, over around 4% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. But to tell the story, other journalists would put Africa's contribution 5%, mm -hmm. uh, USA contribution 15%, China's contribution 25%, uh, this journey X percent. Forgetting that those are individual countries. If you disaggregate Africa's emissions and contributions, it's nothing. Mm. If you break them out by country, this is a story we need to tell more. Mm -hmm. That Africa contributes little to greenhouse gas emissions. And Africa deserves space to grow. And part of that growth will require emissions you know, mm -hmm. yeah. some level of emissions being generated. And the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change recognizes this and says developed countries can pick their emissions and come to carbon neutrality by 2050. Mm -hmm. But that developing countries can pick after, especially the uh, LDCs can pick after and then get to carbon neutrality in the second half of the century. Second half of the century means anywhere between 2050 and 2100. Could be mm -hmm. 2090, could be 2080. But when you listen to the narratives, it's like everyone is punching to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. 2050. And therefore, you are not even allowed to take on investments that even if they contribute to emissions, it's insignificant, but allows you to grow your economy, you know, mm -hmm. allows you to head towards picking. Picking means there will be a rise, stabilization, and a descent. Nobody yeah. said you should quit cold talking as if you just quit cigarettes, you know? No, okay, <laughs> right from this moment, no more emissions. Yeah. Even if, if, even if all Africans died, and refuse to decompose and you don't emit emissions, we'll just save 5% mm -hmm. of total emissions. Can that put us on a path to keeping global temperatures below 2 degrees or heading to the 1.5 degrees we're talking about? No, mm -hmm. we're not the culprits. Those major emitters 
need to cut down using scientific limits or uh, scientific bases to cut down their emissions, you know, to how they can keep the world at 1.5 degrees Celsius warming mm. above pre-industrial age. So that's very important. So that brings about the issue of equity, brings about the issue of a just transition, brings about the equity of fairness, and within the context of each country's sustainable development. Mm. Africans should have a plan to chart their recovery, their development trajectories accordingly. I want to, before we, we, we go into how we build better and the opportunities um, existing, I just want to take you a little bit back. And yeah. because one of the things that I've observed, actually not only in Kenya, is that the disasters are happening uh, far much more faster than before. But when I look at the, the, the climate commitments internationally that Africa has signed up to, when we uh, signed up to the Paris Agreement, African countries agreed to, to the nationally determined contribution. Every country saying, like Kenya saying, okay, fine, we, this, is, this is how much we are going to cut our emissions by 2030 or by 2050. Africa as a whole, 54 countries are responsible for less than 4%. Uh, 4% but then the G20 yeah. themselves, um, they are responsible for the 80% of emissions that we have uh, globally. But then did we accept as Africa to all of us be responsible for cumulative emissions that have led us to where we are today. Are we saying moving forward that even as Africa, we've accepted to um, reduce the emissions and share the very least remaining carbon cake, despite our push to grow? Yeah, I think um, if you look at the Paris Agreement, it was fought hard for. Mm-hmm. It was, the discussions were intense. and. It's, that's why the uh, agreement has listed things like a just transition, mm-hmm. you know, equity, common but differentiated responsibilities, you know, within the context of sustainable development within this. So that already provides us an envelope that we are going to transition to a low, but we are not going to follow the path of Europe. Mm-hmm. We are not going to follow the path of uh, the Americas, for instance, you know, they need to cut down their emissions today. Mm-hmm. For us to do it justly means we should not do it in a way that completely jeopardizes our developments, you know, that we're planning to. And that's why it situates it within the context of sustainable development. We need to develop. The SDGs are all about sustainable development. Yeah. One SDG will not negate the end other 16 MDGs. So the African continent understands that, you know, that yes, this is the situation. And personally, I keep telling people, look, we don't, we can remain a low emitting continent. Other places want to be like us. They want to cut their emissions. They are forced to. We don't have to want to be like those who want to be like us, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they see the path. We see the opportunities, you know, that are there in addressing our climate change challenges. Our underdevelopment is a blessing in disguise. That, for instance, we can do things right, you know, than wait to retrofit. But when you look at the NDCs, which is very interesting, mm-hmm. every African NDC that I have looked at and I've reviewed every one of them, 
has two targets. There's the conditional, conditional target. Yes. And an unconditional target. Mm -hmm. it says, with my money, as part of the global community, we will not directly, you know, push emissions beyond breaking points, even though we don't even have the ability to pollute. With our resources, this is how much we think we can keep our growth trajectory in emissions, 20%. But if you provide the resources we need, because we don't want to use our little resources to make you happy while you continue to pollute. But if you give us the resources we need, we'll do this 80%. But Sophie, today, nobody distinguishes between uh, conditional and unconditional okay. emissions. Mm -hmm. What you are being told, you when people quote Kenya's emission, they quote the conditional emissions that mm -hmm. said you agreed to do X, Y, Z. But get that that wasn't what you said. You mm -hmm. said, I will do on my own ABC. Mm -hmm. But if you give me the resources I need, I can do DEF. Mm -hmm. But nobody puts that distinction mm -hmm. anymore. And not only that, while these poor African countries are struggling to see how they can grow their economies, how they can build resilience in their economic development, we are being told we need more ambitious targets. You know, yeah. Aren't we, ambitious we need enough? to really. Yeah, with this not ambitious enough, we need to revise. And I'm like, are we kidding or what? That this country tells you, I can do 20% mm. on my own. If mm -hmm. you give me money, I can do the remaining 80%. And you take the 80% that you've not provided the resources for. And then you say, that wasn't ambitious enough, push it further. They have not even seen the, result, the money for the first commitments they made. Yeah. Developed countries clearly, as you've stated, said we will we commit to mobilizing, you know, hundred billion dollars mm. per annum mm. by 2020 to support developing country actions on climate change. 2020 looked a long time ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. 2009. But Sophie is with us now. <laughs> this is that year, 2020. Yeah. And it's running to an end. Where is, it to, where is the 100 billion? And next year we have to look at another. It's not as if that 100 billion could have solved problems, but mm. it is a beginning of a conversation. You know, but where is it? We haven't seen it. You know, rather we're seeing a lot of creative accounting from different sources to put together resources, you know, from loans, from equity, from guarantees, from everything you can imagine to put them up together to say this is 100 billion. Mm. that was promised, which I think is unfair because that 100 billion has new, additional, mm -hmm. sufficient resources, you know, and it was meant to basically be grand because the developing countries, I still remember that negotiation, considered mm -hmm. it inappropriate, inappropriate for them to take a loan from the polluters to address their vulnerabilities and pay back the polluters with an interest. And it was also a developed country's responsibility given the convention that um, they are the, the countries that are responsible for the emissions, right? Yes, that was it. And then negotiators even said, look, if you want us to contribute this to a historical thing that you have created, 
then let us have the loss and damage, you know, provision oh, yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And that was fought to a standstill. They said, we are suffering the impacts today. We're not telling you about building resilience. We're talking about current impacts, which we were not on the table where those emissions were made. We were not of it. But those impacts we are experiencing today come from those historical emissions. How can you compensate for what is going on today? Then we can begin to think about new emissions coming up, how we can be a part of that trajectory to bring down global emissions. You know, so I think it's um, it's it's a challenge for us, and um, African countries need to be able to uh, look at what uh, works for them. Yeah. I'm seeing in my years in this business, I've seen a lot of challenges where uh, partners, maybe well-intentioned partners, come in and drag. African countries in any direction without coherence, without the nation, without any clear objective or uh, indicator of how it's going to fit into Africa's general problem. Mm. And that was what we found in the development of the NDCs. So those consultants went to those countries, spent five days in the field or talking with people. And when they got back, they developed indices that when they handed over to the countries, the countries could not recognize themselves in them, mm. in those indices. They were completely different from what they had in their national development plans, completely different from what Africa had inside the Agenda 2063 or the goals of the NAPS, anything, the national uh, adaptation plans and so on. They were not there. And so countries now were confused. I know several of them reached out to us at the African Development Bank and said, look, mm-hmm. could you help us set up a structure how we can better understand the NDCs that we have <laughs> produced and signed onto, you know, how we can mainstream them into our national development plan, how we can raise resources that we need, you know, mm-hmm. to implement those indices, because those indices, if properly done, they would have been part of any national development plan or strategy. But now they were like standalone documents. And so countries have come to see those indices as something we do mm. when donors give us money. But Would if you, not, we continue with our development. Which is sad because then you think about it and, and, and probably it's also one of the problems because donor gives us fund and then there are you know conditions, of course, that comes with this funding. And yeah. then there's consultants that now come in, given the fact that, for example, if Canada is giving us um, Kenya funds and then now the consultant has to come in and draft an NDC. And I'm just saying this as an example. Because you ask yourself, within the continent, uh, despite the money coming from donors, couldn't we have drafted these, you know, uh, NDCs for ourselves and looking into what the plans that we have, what are the policies that we have, and integrating the development 2063 for the for the African region? Would it it been have been more practical to implement these particular NDCs rather than having? demands that are coming from outside and then this is the way we should go but then without having a good practical understanding of where who we are as a country and where we want to go development wise thanks for raising that up i think it's uh that's one of the tragedies of africa's development hmm. we fail to recognize that knowledge is power okay. and whoever has that knowledge for us over us you know displays yes. 
or exhibit that power, you know, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Because we are a set of developed, very brilliant intellectuals across mm -hmm. the entire continent. Even if you did not have it in country X, there are countries A, B, C, D, E that yeah. have it that could yeah. have deployed yeah. such capacities to Absolutely. you. Mm. And you would have known that this is an African thing, looking at these issues from the lens of Africa. And it is because our countries, mm. wherever they see free money, I'm sorry, whether it's $5, $10, $100, they jump at it. But this, mm. it's at their cost. There are consequences, there are conditions, you know. If you allow others to set your goals for you, yeah. tell your stories for yeah. you, yeah. and show yeah. you how to implement things, it's not altruistic until we begin to see climate change as a threat to development, as a development issue, not just as an environmental issue. Mm. We won't understand the power of it. You don't, no country leaves this development to an external agent party hmm. you don't do it so when we see climate change as a development imperative or threat then we'll begin to own that up let me ask a question when ethiopia was going through famine hmm. and kenya last year hmm. which child in the uk stopped going to school because kenyan children were not eating None. Which child, which mother, which mm. who, you know, mm -hmm. sold or shut down his or her business just to have solidarity with the Ethiopian child who was eating or the mm. uh, mothers who had lost their livelihoods? Nothing. Life went on as if nothing happened. And that's the truth. So if you don't sit back and say, you created this problem, come and fix it, you know? Because it is your people that are suffering the impact and not so much those that are, they don't have anything in them to motivate or push, you know, yeah. to solve all your problems. So we need to look inwards. We found ourselves here. These floods, like you said, are getting more frequent, are yeah. getting more intense. Floods that we used to look at as 100-year floods mm. are now happening 30 years. Drought that used to happen every 30 years now happen every five years, yeah. you know, yeah. and each subsequent one becomes more intense, more impactful. So you don't sit back and say, okay, I did not create the problems. Let's see what yeah. happens. Yeah. Hurricane Idai. The same time Hurricane Idai happened in uh, Mozambique. Mozambique, Zimbabwe, yeah. Malawi. Yeah. India was suffering Hurricane Fanny. We lost over a thousand people in those hurricanes in Africa. I'm not saying the numbers, even if, if even if it's one person that dies, a tragedy for a family. But the number of people that died in India or Bangladesh were single units, single digit. Hmm. Because we don't have early warning systems. Hmm. We have not invested in those disaster uh, interventions, you know. Those other countries saw it as important, not because they got donor money, but they realized what could happen, you know, that the government owes its citizens to welfare, you know, and oh. protection. Yeah. Protection from external threats, protection from climate change, protection from extreme weather events, protection from landslides. Name them. It's part of that protection that the government owes its people. 
So if we saw it that way, and we began to look at development the way it should be, that it is something endogenous. You may have support from outside, but please, it is not the outside support that defines your trajectory of development and what you do. You do it. Then let others come in to help if you see the need for it. Perfect. At, at this point, what are the solutions? But before I let you answer, let me remind our listeners that this conversation is made possible by a collaboration with Africa's premier development finance institution, the African Development Bank Group. In particular, it's Climate Change and Green Growth Department. Dr. Neon, how do we get there? Well, um, everyone knows the way to go is a low carbon climate resilient development pathway. Yeah. The train has moved. We cannot be left at the station. You know, we have to move with the train. But we define our path. But you can't stand still. You know, you can't stand still. We the world is moving towards a low carbon climate resilient development. What is it? And I said that if there is a region that has the ability, capability, the resources to do this is the African continent. Mm. My bank group president, Dr. Deshina, says it often. He says, look, why should we spend minimum of $35 billion every year importing food? Mm-hmm. Which means there is a market, a $35 billion market oh, for, food, yeah. for food in Africa every year. And this is a continent that in most parts of the continent, when you throw a seed up in the air, it, as it lands, is germinating because we have such fertile lands in many other places. So why do we import that food? Well, we have opportunities for climate smart agriculture. We have opportunities for improved technologies in our farming. Mm-hmm. Why should we depend on farming? Many years, many years after every of our independence, 50, 60 years, when it rains, we eat. When it dries up, we starve. Mm-hmm. Who does that? Why should we keep that model of development. Yeah. Two, why are we in darkness? If we have anything, we have sources of energy. We have gas in abundance. Mm-hmm. Kenya has gas now. You know, yeah. many yeah. countries are discovering that. Then we have the ge- uh, geothermal potential in Kenya. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you have hydro dams. You know, you have wind. Then you have solar. You know, across the entire Sahel, across the entire mm. desert, you have solar. That Europe is looking for ways through various programs how to tap Africa's to tap solar potentials yep. to electrify Europe. And yet we're in darkness. It just doesn't make sense because we could do it. It's possible to do it. How many centers in Africa are doing research into solar production? Mm. If not to go to China and buy panels that they have made. Mm-hmm. who is working on alternative turbine solutions you know that can use the resources we have if not to import turbines from other places why do we constantly believe that our economies will grow on importation mm-hmm. taking what others yes. are doing and i can tell you most of those don't will give you the best they'll give you the substandard ones that will bring to our continent. So we have opportunities. We have opportunities in our cities. You know, our cities are growing at a very phenomenal rate, mm. but most of them still underdeveloped. How can we begin to create smart cities, climate smart cities? 
how can we, if Kenya could do better, I'm sure they could transform Nairobi. Yeah. Through smart technologies. We're in the era of the fourth industrial revolution. Mm. Drones are being used to analyze people's farmlands, analyze the sort of deficiencies they have in the soil nutrients, identify where through precision farming they can put different types of fertilizers in that farm and plant from the comfort of an office using drones, drone technology. How are we embracing this? We have opportunities to move up. Is it through artificial intelligence? Is it through machine language learning? You know, we have a whole lot of opportunities for the African youth, you know, mm. and take advantage of these opportunities. Things mm. are happening, Sophie. And they may look at it as if it is climate change, but it has come to stay. Countries are beginning to reform subsidies. And I think it's time we did that, you know, yeah. because if you continue to fund, to subsidize fossil fuel, you will not give opportunities to others, you know, who want to come and develop these renewable energy technologies. Mm. The prices have come down. Let's create a leveling play field. Let the lobby from most of the fossil fuel companies stop. Or let them not let the lobby not be the basis you know for us to do things but then i understand i've always said and i will keep saying mm -hmm. that i don't want to lump fossil fuels together there's coal there's gas yeah several years ago living in canada the canadian government transitioned from diesel buses run buses to gas powered public bus systems mm -hmm. and each of those buses they wrote on them clearly this bus is powered by natural gas mm -hmm. it was wonderful to see a transition from coal yeah how come that today africans that want to do gas have been told is fossil mm. when a few years ago it was the talk of the town it was god sent interventions you know to save planet i do not believe that we should be driven by other people's uh, what they think or what they say gas emissions is far lower than emissions from coal mm -hmm. that even transiting from coal to gas means we probably will move from our five percent to three percent mm -hmm. just by transitioning to gas I don't know who else, which other region can beat that ambition. That as a region, whether it is Europe or whether it is the Americas, North America, wherever it is, that they collectively, all their countries can target to keep emissions at 3%. That's Africa's bold emission target, mm. if just gas. So I do not believe that we should shut down gas, you know, and yeah. go into solar completely. There's still a lot we need to understand about solar. It's very intermittent, you know? Yeah. We cannot generate the base load that we need when we need it. The same thing with wind, you know? Sure. But while we are working towards that, we need a steady source of power, you know? Which gas will provide us with that steady source of power, you know? Mm. Oil can give us that steady source of power mm -hmm. until we are able to transition through a just transition that allows us to use the resources we have, you know, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. in a way that will still allow us to meet our goal of carbon neutrality by the second half of the century. Mm. I'm just thinking of the developed countries would dictate the trends by which we take in terms of developing because then we keep going back to them of asking for resources. I, I, I totally agree and the whole just transition and the responsibility. But is it also time we say we look back home and say what resources do we have? And then we invest in the youth that we have, the technology that we have, the, the knowledge that we have. Because I saw during COVID-19, like in Kenya and different other countries, you find youth from universities coming with different you know, technology that was amazing. But then invest in these particular young people. Because look at solar in the first place. When we go to China, we go to Germany, then who owns these technologies? For years down the line, we keep importing. Even at the end of the day, you find there's a lot of pollution within the countries. But then can we look into different countries? So this village in Cote d'Ivoire, what do we have in this particular area that we can um, use? And then what knowledge do we have? And then that could power this particular region or in terms of even agriculture, rather than every time saying help us. Probably we could have a more profound way of saying and a stand and saying, as Kenya, we're going to develop coal or we're going to actually mine our natural gas because this is where we want to go. I think you've just nailed, put the nail exactly where it belongs. I don't want to cast aspersions on our leaders, but I think many of our countries have some unholy alliances, you know, mm -hmm. that we are allowing to uh, thwart whatever plans we need you know, to implement such that if we have a plan we pass it by those countries first if they approve mm -hmm. them then we come to and implement if they don't approve them then they dies and nobody asks the locals the nationals the indigenous the citizens to say these are the plans you know and how can we go about doing them one african head of state whom i admire a lot says Africans are so used to asking for things they don't need, mm -hmm. even for things they already have. They go to beg for it. We have, like you mentioned, we have those, I have traveled around the continent. I have seen young chaps with wonderful demos, demonstration technologies, with wonderful ideas and initiatives that need to be taken, you know, to, uh, contribute to the development of the country. But these young kids are left to go uh, look for money from venture capitalists who are not interested because those technologies are not appropriate for their own clients, where they want. Yeah. They're only appropriate for the African continent. So those venture capitalists don't put money in there. We don't have similar systems on the continent that can support many of those technologies at scale, you know, or governments take these up. So those technologies fall into what we call the value of death because they can't move from demo to commercialization, you know, and they have wonderful ideas. And many others may even see those technologies as competitions for their own technologies that they are marketing here. So why would anybody want to support that? The responsibility is on us as Africans to say, we need to develop. And let me use that to mention that uh, for us at the African Development Bank, there's, a, there's an initiative we're really working on called the Africa Financial Alliance 
on climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everyone says the private sector will, be, will contribute to about 75% of the resources needed to address climate change. Yeah. When you look at the private sector in Africa, they are not the Fortune 500 companies. They are the small or micro, medium and small scale enterprises. Yeah. They are the mom and dad, dad shops and they are the, you know, and so on. That's our private sector. These people have their own unique vulnerabilities. Yeah. Many of them cannot access banks because the loans are terrible or they don't have all the collaterals that they need, you know, to get loans from the bank. It dies. So what we have done is that we've created this alliance that has brought together all players in the financial sector mm -hmm. in Africa, from the central banks to the ministers of finance, sovereign wealth funds, commercial banks, regional development banks, you know, uh, pension funds, wherever they keep bulk money to say, look, how can we convince you that the NDCs for Africa have a $30 billion investment window mm -hmm. for 2030? When countries say, look, we commit to putting, generating 1.5 gigawatts of rooftop solar electricity by 2030, please, who is going to implement that work? It's not the government. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not the universities, it's a private sector person seeing the opportunity there because government says this is what we will do. Yeah. And when they see that opportunity, they get to the bank. The bank says, ah, climate change, ah, no. Because of the narrative we've painted on climate change as doom, gloom, vulnerability, volatility, mm. name them, all the negatives, you know, we can imagine, we attribute them or we associate them with climate change. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So which um, bank will want to put money, which private sector will want to come into that space that is so terrible, you know, mm. that is so vulnerable? They don't come. When banks now want to come, what do they do? They even increase the interest because it's risky. So we are changing that narrative from saying climate change is all about gloom and doom to saying, look, there are opportunities. Yeah. You know, opportunities for climate smart agriculture, opportunities for, uh, when you look at impact investors, there are people out there, most of these young chaps coming up, they are not so much about profit. They're impact investors. They want to invest in things that can yield impact, that they can see. Either impacts on gender, equality, impacts on environmental sustainability, impacts on building climate resilience, but there are impact investors. Mm. How can you identify, recognize, you know, and facilitate resource, access to resources for such people? Central bank, what can you do to help the commercial banks under your direct supervision to do well? Ministers of finance, you run the economy. What can you do? What policies can you put on board, you know? Insurance companies, what can you do? So that's something we're bringing that is on the table now we're working. Yeah. We're creating awareness. We're developing training sessions for now for to change that mindset that these are opportunities, you know? So that's one of the things we're doing with the Financial Alliance on, on climate change. Yeah. And I call it a domestic resource mobilization, which many people don't want to hear that you are committing your resources, you know, to uh, 
to climate change. Mm. In Ghana, in Ghana, we're doing a project started in Nigeria. Okay. Women don't have access to capital. You know that very well, like the men do have. Mm. They don't have access to bank. They are not on the radar, you know. But when you talk about agriculture, the majority of the labor force for agriculture is what? It's women. It's women. Yeah. And you are thinking climate agriculture, and you're not letting the people know the land who know the land to lead it. The man is not there. It's the women that plant, they till, they reap, they harvest, they, you know, they understand that land very well. They understand the business. But when it comes to financial matters, they are left behind someone. So we said, look, you know what? We will put money to uh, in a commercial bank mm -hmm. and say, give this woman loan at X percent. Mm -hmm. We pay the difference, you know? And if they default, take this money in. Sophia can tell you that the default rate is very low. Women, when they get money from loans from banks, they are more committed to paying back and they do pay sure. back. Yeah, absolutely. And the men. Mm. So how can we convince now the bank that we put money in now is now running after the women themselves. They don't need us anymore because they have yeah. seen yeah. businesses there. Yeah. So those are the things we want to do. Domestic, let's not politicize things. I don't talk about climate change in isolation. I want to see it as a development issue. That is a threat. Mm. What can we do? Sure. Or if it is an opportunity, how can we take advantage of that opportunity? Mm -hmm. And this is these are two clear examples that I'm giving about what we're doing with our women, because you cannot successfully run the agricultural economy without the women being there and playing a major role. I agree. And you cannot do that without strengthening the banks for the banks to see the opportunities in it to lend to the women or mm -hmm. to provide them with possible grants or something. Oh, perfect. I'm, I'm looking at the time and I can see we're already running out. We've already run out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Neung. I sincerely appreciate it. I wish we had more time, but I'm hoping that within this really series, good. we could actually have, have, have some more, um, you know, talk on, especially on the issues financing um, this uh, climate change and development. And so we have to wind up. Maybe let me just add one thing there so that it picks up. It's very important. The African Development Bank is very committed, you know, yeah. to addressing climate change on the continent. We said uh, we would increase significantly our share of climate finance, uh -huh. which moved from 6%, you know, from 9% in 2016 to 40% this year. Last year we were 35%, you know, uh, yeah. ready to meet the 40% of our total lending mm -hmm. being, being allocated to climate change mm. until this COVID-19 came and we had to reshuffle money somewhere. But yeah. even at that, we have said by between 2020 and 2025, we want to mobilize collectively $25 billion to address climate change interventions on the African continent. Yeah. That's significant. Because we're a low-emitting continent generally, our focus is on adaptive building, you know? Yeah. And globally, if you check global statistics, of total global climate finances, 10% go to adaptation, 90% for mitigation. And Africa says we don't pollute. So we need that adaptation more. But what the bank has done, as at last year, 55 of our climate investments went to adaptation, 55%. Okay. 
leaving 45 for mitigation, which is, you see, this responds to the needs of the region. Absolutely. That we know your yeah. needs, we see your needs, we commit more resources to adaptation, and we are looking to see how others can follow that same trajectory and at least bring to parity climate finance, mitigation finance and climate adaptation finance. Okay. Thank you so much for adding that. Maybe you maybe you find a word before we go. I need to say that uh, climate change is an issue you know, on the African continent. It's a, it's a challenge, you know, but yeah. it also could give us opportunities rather than sitting down to play the victim all constantly. Let's find what opportunities does it bring to create a better society, to yeah. change an economic development model. Mm. And the other thing is we can't do it alone. No single institution can do it alone. We need to come together. We need partnership. There's so many duplications, triplications of initiatives on the continent. You know, we need to come together, you know, have a, some sort of partnerships with like-minded entities to drive this agenda. For us, because adaptation is very important to us, we just established a partnership with the Global Center on Adaptation mm -hmm. to work solely on making sure that this gets to the highest level. It's co-chaired by Ban Ki-moon, you know, okay. yeah. the center. And let that message needs to get to the highest level that adaptation is very important, particularly for developing countries. Let's not concentrate so much on reducing emission, which is also good, but the impacts are already on us and we need to put money in there. So the partnership with the Global Center on, uh, on Adaptation, it's quite an important innovative initiative by, for us at the African Development Bank. And we look forward to really upscaling and accelerating adaptation on the African continent. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Neil. I sincerely appreciate your time. And um, thank you so much for your contribution today. You're welcome. And next week, we'll be talking about why adaptation is important for developing countries. But this is where we end our first episode on green economy, made possible by a collaboration with Africa's premier development finance institution, the African Development Bank, in particular, its climate change and green growth department. For any questions or comments, feel free to email me using info at africaclimateconversations.com or leave a message on our Twitter page on our social media pages or our website remember this podcast is available on my website africaclimateconversations.com apple podcast stitcher google play spotify and every other podcast channel you access your other podcasts from until next week kwaheri have yourself a productive and safe week ahead inaendeshwa na afripods